CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, I've got a lot to talk about with our panel today, so I want to get right to introducing them, uh, starting with Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, my Wednesday partner on the show. Welcome back, first of all, Greg, from vacation. Um, glad you got a chance to rest up, but we're glad to have you back on the show. And uh, we should just be candid and tell people your, your, your throat's a little scratchy this morning, but you're with <laughs> us anyway. I am here. Um, I, I probably caught what my youngest daughter got because um, she is not at sleepaway camp. She's still home and no coronavirus, no strep throat, but maybe a little one day virus. Well, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to be with us, um, as always. Uh, we're also joined uh, by Rick Dent, who is the vice president of Matrix Communications, a firm that does government relations work and some campaign work. And uh, Rick has become an invaluable resource for this show because he tracks campaign advertising spending and the commercials that uh, their, the candidates are putting up. We're going to talk about that in a little while. How are you, Rick? I'm fine. Great to be here. Yeah, we should point out to uh, people, as we have in the past, that you also, of course, work directly in politics. You were uh, Zell Miller's uh, press secretary back when uh, Zell was governor of Georgia. But fortunately, you got out of the dark side of politics. Uh, well, maybe you didn't. You're still doing government relations work. <laughs> I'm, probably, I'm, probably more, I'm probably more in the dark these days than I was back then. <laughs> okay, I get that. Uh, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, uh, Alan Abramowitz, is back with us as well. Um, Alan, how are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. <laughs> We're very glad that you could be here, and we're so happy to have uh, your colleague, Andra Gillespie, professor of political science and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference, also at Emory University. Hi, Andra. Good morning. How are you? Good, good. Let's start, if we can, Greg, with the, the I, th I think it's fair to call it a blockbuster story, reported by the Washington Post and CNN yesterday. Um, they both uh, uh, revealed an email which had been sent out by a Trump campaign, high-level campaign staffer here in Georgia, a guy named Robert Sinners, who was communicating with a group of 14 Republicans who had been chosen as, I think the only way to describe them as fake electors uh, for uh, Donald Trump back in 2020. They met at the Capitol on the same day that the actual group of Biden electors were meeting to certify uh, their uh, uh, votes, that they were uh, the legitimate electors uh, for uh, Georgia. But what the email reveals is that Sinners said he urged them to keep this whole scheme secret, that if it wasn't secret, it would be blown wide open. Um, and we're going to talk in a minute about what, what the consequences of this could be, but you were down at the Capitol that day. I was. I was down at the Capitol. 
um, to cover the Democratic formal casting of the Electoral College votes up in this. It was uh, held in the state Senate chambers. And I had interviewed. This is funny because oh, this is unique because I had interviewed a bunch of um, several Republican electors because I, <clears throat> I just wanted to make sure that there wasn't some nefarious plot going on. Um, and I interviewed a few of them for a story that ran that day in the AJC, you know, sort of a preview of the vote. And um, no one told me, they told me flat out there was not going to be any sort of secret gathering of Republicans. There was, no, there was nothing, uh, you know, planned going on. So this is why this email really uh, woke me up, because they were getting directions to not tell the press, to not tell me at the AJC, to not tell our colleagues in the press corps about their plans. And so when I showed up, I saw a lot of familiar Republican faces, and it's the Capitol, so there's there's a reason to see State Senator Burt Jones and David Schaefer, the Georgia GOP chair. There's there's a reason to see them there, but it seemed odd that they were there on the same December morning mm-hmm. that um, that Democrats were in a cast of electoral ballots, uh, electoral ballots. And as I walked upstairs on those big marble steps, I walked by I think it was room 216, um, where some of those Republicans were gathering. I tried to get in. And someone at the door, who I still don't know who it was, um, unknown to me, said, this is an educational meeting, and kind of smirked at me. And I had to get mm-hmm. upstairs um, mm-hmm. to go cover the Democratic um, real casting mm-hmm. of the ballots. And as I'm up there, I tweeted mm-hmm. something out, and as I'm up there, um, my colleague Richard Elliott over at WSB, um, he tweets from inside the room. They, they, they eventually let reporters in and said, hey, there is a, a fake electoral ballot scheme going on by Republicans. And, and right after the Democratic vote, I rushed downstairs and interviewed David Schaefer along with some of my colleagues um, who said – Schaefer at the time said that he was um, just trying to keep options open in case the, uh, the, the last you know, the last ditch challenges, legal challenges to overturn the election succeeded. So um, it, we knew about this gathering of fake electors all along, Andrew Gillespie. Um, it, that isn't a surprise to us. But the revelation that they were advised by a Trump high-level staffer who said he was told by David Schaefer, the chair of the state party, and by, by Trump campaign officials, this had to be done in secret or else the whole thing might be blown, does lead to potential consequences both here in Georgia, at Fulton County, where the special grand jury is investigating uh, the possible criminal wrongdoing of Trump and his allies, and in the January 6th committee public hearings coming up. So uh, talk to us about why this matters, Andre and Alan, let's get you in the mix on this, too. Well, this is important because it speaks to intent. So in everything that I've, I've, I've read about this, the lawyers who uh, you know have been consulted and quoted on this talk about this issue of intent. And I think the intent kind of is the issue, the legal issue that's going to come up here. And this certainly does add to the idea that this uh, was a conspiracy, that there, there was planning, there was coordination going on here um, uh, to do something that was fraudulent. Um, I think this is also important uh, because, Greg, correct me if I'm wrong, because I think it's in the AJC story, Senator actually works for the Secretary of State's office, which is beyond me yeah. at this point. Like, why? Yeah. Like, the optics of that are terrible <laughs> um, at, at this point. So there are a lot of, of, of important issues, and we understand why this is important. Electors get chosen the summer before a presidential election. They are there basically to be on call. Whoever wins the state, that's the slate of electors that goes for it. So if it's a Democratic candidate that wins, there's a group of, of, of Democrats who are going to be there to cast that vote. If it's Republicans, it's the Republican side. So what 
it looks like the Georgia Republicans were doing was they weren't sure that the people that they chose in the summer would actually follow through in casting a ballot for Donald Trump if there was some, you know, really funny legal or extra legal kind of, you know, uh, machinations going on there to try to change the election results. So they wanted to make sure that they had people there who were going to do whatever it was that the Trump team wanted them to do. That's why this is bad. And so I don't know if that's actually clear to everybody in the audience why it matters that they're switching them out. There's a due process for selecting electors that happened in the summer. And uh, this should have been moot anyway, but they should have been able to trust the people they selected in the summer to vote as the state legally voted, as opposed to putting in people who were going to vote uh, regardless of what the facts told them. Ellen? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, so uh, this was a totally extra legal process that was going on here. It was totally outside. There, there are laws on the books in each state, you know, that govern the ways in which the electors are chosen. Uh, and what they were trying to do here was make an end run, essentially, around that legal process. And, and so it's very much relevant to uh, Bonnie Willis's investigation. Um, and the question that I think she will be asking is, or what she'll be trying to do is trace, you know, uh, this back to see, like, who was really like, behind this? Um, who was really behind this effort, not just in Georgia, uh, but, you know, we know in a number of other swing states to choose alternate so-called alternate slates of electors and uh, by, thereby bypassing the normal legal process. So this was clearly an, uh, you know, sort of attempt to subvert the, uh, the, the normal electoral process that we go through, a uh, very complicated one, to, to choose the president of the United States. So it's, it's, a, it's very serious. Rick, a couple of points that I'd like to add and then bring you in. Um, uh, uh, first of all, uh, Andre Gillespie is correct. Robert Sinners now works for Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, which is interesting given what we've learned now about his role with the uh, Trump campaign. Um, uh, the, the, uh, the other thing I wanted to add to that, Rick, is Sinners uh, not only told them they had to keep uh, this whole thing process secret, he told them they should lie to the security guards at the state capitol when they came in the building about what they were doing there. They were told they should say they were there to visit either Senator Brandon Beach or uh, Senator Burt Jones, who, you know, members of this fake elector group. Um, uh, it, so there's there, we add that uh, to the picture here. Um, weigh in on this, Rick. Well, to be fully transparent, I want had people lie to get into the state capitol <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, to disrupt the funny Purdue press conference. So let me be open about that. Um, you know, there's not a lot to add other than my mama. My mama used to say, if it ain't wrong, you shouldn't have to hide it. And I, I think her wisdom is spot on. These are very smart individuals. They knew exactly what they were doing. They had to hide because what they were, were doing was wrong. They didn't want people to know. Um, and it's silly to think otherwise. Um, I want to, Greg, talk about the, the other place where this becomes relevant. That's the January 6th committee. But I, 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 very quickly, I want to make a correction. Uh, I had a senior moment yesterday when we were talking about what happens to the electors' uh, votes. Uh, and I said that one thing that could cause some real 
uh, problems for this fake slate was that they sent their slate off as if it were the official slate. And I said to the Library of Congress, well, that was my senior moment, that the electors actually send off to the National Archives. And I appreciate the listener who called in to make that correction. But just to get that out of the way, Greg, uh, the January 6th committee, which has its first public hearing tomorrow night, um, is going to lay a, a, out um, a path that starts with the Trump efforts to overturn the election. And Georgia will be a big part of that. Obviously, the Brad Raffensperger, the infamous phone call. But this, too, now uh, becomes part of what they very well may talk about in terms of the fake electors, the secrecy we now know that was behind it. So once again, Georgia is going to find itself in the middle of an important national story. Center stage, once again, and, and we've reported at the AJC that um, a number of uh, that, that federal investigators, um, congressional investigators have scrutinized these fake electors, scrutinized David Schaefer, um, and even the four um, electors who decided not to take part in this Republican plot uh, in December, they've been, invest they've been um, interviewed by federal investigators, too. So there is a wide net here. Um, several of them talked to us uh, on the record about what they were being questioned on, uh, basically being, being asked any sort of records, any sort of documents they can show um, that they received about the fake Republican elector scheme. Um, so this is, a, this is, again, it's a wide net. We already know so much about the Brad Raffensperger phone call, about so much that has been reported over the, the past year or so, but it's astounding that there's still new revelations coming to light. And one other quick note um, about Robert Center's He's been involved in the, the Brad Raffensperger's office for months now, and he is, uh, I was told yesterday, um, his official title is the Director of Constituent Services. So he, he is retaining, so far at least, a prominent role in Brad Raffensperger's office. And, and Greg, I believe that he gave a quote to the Washington Post, um, or, or the Washington Post quoted him as telling some uh, individual or group that he now essentially, he doesn't use these words, but he essentially understands differently what happened in the election and no longer supports uh, that, uh, uh, yeah. what happened. Yeah. Which Andra? Would be... Go ahead, Greg. Go ahead, Greg. Oh, I was Finish. just saying that would be part and parcel for Brad Raffensperger's own philosophy, of course, having stood up to the, the, the calls to overturn the election results. I, I, I get that, and I respect that, but there's still an optics problem here, and I think a lot of people are going to have a hard time, you know, accepting that. And, you know, I'm all for people being employed, but, like, you don't always have to be employed in, in, in the lane in which, like, you, you mess up in a really public way that actually undermines public trust. I, I think it's Alan? a problem. For, yeah, I think it's a problem for Raffensperger. Um, you know, he, he just won— his uh, primary with, with, without a runoff, which is kind of surprising to a lot of people. And part of the reason he did that was that a lot of folks who voted for Brad Raffensperger, uh, including quite a few Democrats, I think, who crossed over to vote in that Republican primary because they were uh, wanted to reward him for the you know his integrity and for his uh, willingness to stand up to Trump. Um, and and this just looks bad. Um, to have someone you working know, in, in, in his office who was actually working to undermine the election at the same time. Um, yeah, yeah, Rick, in fact, in the Democratic Secretary of State runoff debate at, uh, at the Atlanta Press Club stage the other day, uh, the two, both candidates pointed all of this out. 
uh, they said, you know, don't give Brad Raffensperger too much credit for standing up to Trump. That was fine, but he has been a perpetuator of other uh, conspiracy theories about the election, and this could, in fact, contribute to that, um, uh, the way people respond. Uh, absolutely, it could. Uh, again, just as everyone else has pointed out, you know, if you tried to steal an election, you probably shouldn't be hired to work in the Secretary of State's office. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's just common sense. Um, I mean, uh, the, one of the great ironies, though, of that primary is that both for the Secretary of State and the governor, they may have been inoculated for the general election. And now that Trump baggage, that Trump negativity, has almost been washed away from them somehow. And that, to me, is one of the miracles of that primary, that they are in better standing now in the general because there is a perception that they really didn't go along, they weren't a part of, they aren't Trump. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, that, that is Alan. Uh, that, I think that's true, uh, at least uh, uh, to a degree. Um, obviously, they're, uh, the Democratic opponents, whoever they, they – well, with Stacey Abrams in one case, we know. Um, but we'll, we'll be trying very hard to uh, dissuade voters of that uh, and to point out the, the, the many ways in, in which both Kemp and, and Raffensperger have sort of, sort of played along uh, with, with a lot of the uh, – a lot of Trump's, uh, you know, his efforts to undermine the election. Uh, Raffensperger talking about how his office worked hard to stop illegal immigrants from voting, which is, you know, so, something that, that didn't happen. Um, and, and Kemp, of course, in many ways has, uh, you know, worked very hard uh, to appeal to the base of the party, which is what he needed to do in order to win that primary. And in, but in doing that, he's had to, you know, take positions and and, and promote policies on on everything from abortion to guns that are very pleasing to the Republican base, but not necessarily to, um, you know, swing voters or, or certainly the Democrats. Well, uh, and, and beyond that, Greg, um, obviously there are, are many Democrats who would say uh, Kemp's uh, uh, enthusiastic support for all the election uh, so-called reforms that came out of the 2020 race, SB202, uh, uh, was another example that he was perpetuating uh, its solutions for problems that never existed in the first place. Sure, and that's also why you're seeing Stacey Abrams and her allies talk about guns, abortion, these social cultural wars issues um, that will only get more attention as the summer goes on with the expected Supreme Court ruling and, and unfortunately the specter of more mass shootings. But Rick is right. I mean, when I talk to Democrats, senior Democrats, they worry that Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger and other candidates who beat back Trump, uh, Trump back contenders seem more moderate by comparison. And mm-hmm. Brian Kemp would never call himself a moderate. He's the first mm-hmm. lifelong Republican governor in Georgia history. He has a very conservative record. Um, but by contrast to David Perdue, he suddenly seems um, to maybe to some middle of the road voters more, more palatable. And this is a quote I got from a friend of the show, Chip Lake, who is not a, you know, who's worked against Brian Kemp on many, many uh, different occasions. Chip Lake said, as painful and as expensive as this has been for Brian Kemp, he's talking about the primary, it will end up being helpful for the Republican Party because it will be impossible for Stacey to blindly tie him to Trump. 
that makes a more mainstream an election cycle that already favors Republicans. So that, in a nutshell, is the challenge that Democrats have going forward. Mm-hmm. Well, Lucy, and I say this with a smile on my face, but maybe the biggest attack ad that Democrats could run against Brian Kemp is to try to start painting him as a moderate. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of Operation Chaos there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Greg, let me one other quick note before we move on in terms of uh, of all of the uh, changes in election laws, result of 2020 and the like. I was struck the other day by the fact that certainly Vernon Jones has now proposed, and I think there are other Republicans who have jumped on this bandwagon, um, that we need reform in terms of the ability for people to cross over to take a, a ballot in you know whatever ballot they want. And maybe it was time to establish party registration in Georgia. And the reason I think that's interesting is it's another example of Republicans looking at the outcome of an election fearing that some Republicans lost because Democrats took Republican ballots and now believing they have to fix the system so that can't happen again. Yeah, I mean, this is overall a part of an effort by Donald Trump and his allies to paint David Perdue's losses as Democrats to blame. And it's not. It was such an overwhelming route by by Governor Kemp that even if every single one of the crossover votes voted for uh, voted for David Perdue, it still wouldn't have even barely made a dent in the in the overall turnout uh, and the overall margins. But look, I mean, Vernon Jones, he was a Democrat two years ago. He voted in the 2020 Democratic primary for president. Um, Mm -hmm. The reason why we hear over and over from Republican leaders who actually will make these decisions that this is not going anywhere is is you go down the local routes, right? How many how many Muskogee County Republicans want to vote in the DA, the cab DA race? Because that's it, right? That's that's the only choice they get. Um, That happens. That's playing out in local races throughout the state. And there would be an uproar from Republicans and Democrats who want to cross over to, to make the final decision on their local races if this was this was to be changed. I think it's also important to point out how unusual it is for people to cross over vote. Um, so we got that 6% number this time around, right, because this was, these were very high-profile races and the stakes were high. But this is actually something that really only the really sort of well-informed inside baseball people do on a regular basis. I think it's also important to point out examples of when this happens on the other side. So Alan will probably remember this. I moved to Atlanta in 2005. And so you were thinking about like the fourth district races, like against Cynthia, uh, Cynthia McKinney, right? So if you were a North DeKalb Republican, you voted in that Democratic primary because you had strong preferences for either Denise Majet um, in, in 04, or you had um, a strong preferences for Hank Johnson in 2006. Um, or eight, I can't remember, sort of my, my dates are, are, are escaping me at this point. But like this stuff happens. And so and it's not that like and this works for both sides. It's just that this time it happened to be Democrats doing the crossover voting. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and yeah, I don't think this this is going anywhere. Um, yeah, there's no question that Republican crossover voters were uh, played a crucial role in both of those elections in in defeating in the defeat of Cynthia McKinney. Uh, in, in DeKalb County, um, but it, it it is, as Andrew pointed out, a, a, a very small percentage of the electorate. So in the, even in this election, where we're talking about an unusually large number of crossover voters, um, I think the estimate is that 6% of the voters in the Republican primary had voted in the Democratic presidential primary in 2020, 6%. That, that, that's a pretty small minority. And not only that, we don't really know if these people are Democrats. 
Um, we just know that they voted in the Democratic presidential primary in 2020. It turns out, uh, based on investigations done uh, by the AJC, that a, a lot of those folks had previously voted in Republican primaries. Um, so just knowing what primary someone voted in in a given year does not uh, uh, give you any reliable information about what their sort of long-term you know, party affiliation is. We're not going to party registration in Georgia. It's just not going to happen. Well, it, and, and I, I take all of that. I'm, I'm really glad you all weighed in on that. My point, though, Rick, is this impulse among some Republicans that, hey, wait a minute, we lost this election. We better change the rules that maybe mm-hmm. led to why we lost that election so it won't happen again just seems to be really uh, palpable within, the, within at least some Republican ranks. It, it is, and it's almost an obsession, but it should be an obsession because they can see what's coming down the track demographically. So as we've seen in the last two years, and it's never going to stop as long as they have power, and that is they're going to lose this state. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And when they do, they're not going to get it back for a long, long time, probably. And so you're going to see them look for every edge they can find because the demographics are against them. All right, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, let's take a look at ad spending uh, in the Senate race and in the governor's race. Uh, And beyond that, we're going to look at a brand new Wall Street Journal poll that I'm really eager to hear how our panel reacts to. Uh, This is Political Rewind, back in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Emory University professors Andrew Gillespie and Alan Abramowitz, uh, Greg Bluestein, and Rick Dent join us for today's Political Rewind. Rick, I'd love to start with you as we talk about ad spending. Uh, I love uh, the email that you sent out about this. You said uh, in, in kind of summarizing what's going on in terms of the content of the ads out there, you said, I think the key is that we are seeing mostly, and then in all caps, negative ads. And then you <laughs> add, in June. In June, you say, <laughs> what's so unusual about seeing so many negative ads in June, Rick? You know, in the old days, let's say 10 years ago, it used to be a candidate campaign versus a candidate campaign. And honestly, a governor's race, a U.S. Senate race, if you had about five weeks of negative advertising, that's what you needed to win an election. We're talking five months now. <laughs> June, July, all, oh, my Lord. And we already know, for example, in the Senate race, there's about $70 million just sitting there in the fall, just waiting to be used. And it's all going to be negative. It's all going to be negative. Um, the fact that we're going to have to sit through five months of it, and quite honestly, there's not enough to say. 
over five months, which is why you see a lot of repetition. All the different packs say the same thing, but differently. But it's going to be five months of sludge. And by the way, don't forget, they were already hitting each other in the primary. So that's the difference in campaigns these days. And it's a function of just the buckets of money that are now available. Um, Greg, uh, let's look at some of the ways that it, uh, uh, Rick broke this down for us. Uh, he points out in the Senate race, everything that's out there right now is negative. It says uh, the Warnock campaign is spending $1.2 million this week uh, attacking Herschel Walker over his COVID cure, which we, we haven't talked about on this show before, but Walker some time ago talked about a mist you would breathe so that you wouldn't get COVID. <clears throat> Yeah, look, this is one of the Democratic strategies to attack Herschel Walker is we've been reporting about this. We've been talking about these, but the Republican opponents of Herschel Walker didn't have the money um, to finance all sorts of attack ads, bringing these things to light. Um, so uh, now we've got Democratic, well-financed Democratic efforts um, to use Herschel Walker's own words against him in a meaningful way. And this is the first of what we expect to be many attack ads, basically just showing 27 seconds of Herschel Walker uh, talking, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, to a to a uh, to a radio host or on TV or wherever, uh, and using that against him. Um, but the challenge for for Senator Warnock right now is he's spending a lot of money too. He and he was uh, going up with positive ads, and he just had a digital. As we were speaking, he had a digital ad that was positive that just that popped on Twitter. Um, he is spending a lot, and he's basically maintaining where his levels are. So he might have to spend double, triple to start moving up in the numbers. And at the same time, there are two or maybe, Rick, I think there's three now outside Republican groups um, on air right now attacking um, Raphael Warnock, where there is no, um, there's all sorts of reserve spending for down the road. But right now, um, right. Raphael Warnock is out there alone. He has got no allies backing him up right now on the airwaves in Atlanta. Or Georgia. Uh, uh, let's stick with that for just a minute, Greg, because you uh, report, and I, I, th I assume it was your reporting in the Jolt this morning, that uh, uh, the, the Warnock campaign, I mean, uh, the, the uh, uh, Walker campaign and the allies of that campaign, the PACs, are putting together a strategy for countering uh, the ads that are going to come at them about these bizarre statements that Walker has made about things like the COVID uh, fighting uh, mist. Um, and that they're basically going to say, hey, if you want to make this campaign about issues, let's talk about inflation. Let's talk about gas prices. Let's talk about baby form. Right. That's that's the approach. Yeah. Yes, they're, they're trying to use Senator Warnock's words against him in that sense, because when at the same around the same time in 2020, when he was getting pummeled by attacks of being called a, or it was later on the campaign, but he was being called a radical liberal and all these bad names. He said, let's talk about the issues. Kelly Leffer doesn't want to talk about the issues. I do. So they're using that clip saying, okay, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Um, Cause Herschel Walker would like nothing more right now than to focus on the economy because his, his bet, his wager, and it's just the GOP wager overall is if this race is about the economy, then Republicans win uh, up and down the ballot in November. Andra Republican one nation, which is a PAC uh, supporting uh, 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 Herschel Walker has spent a million dollars, Rick tells us, negative ads on Warnock that deal with inflation and the overall performance of President Biden. 
Well, I mean, they're clearly trying to tie Warnock to, to, to Biden and using that as an albatross. So using the unpopular president in power and the unpopular Congress in power is sort of a way to say that you don't want these people in power and that there needs to be a change. It's not a surprise uh, that they would go there uh, with this. Um, you know, this is a, and that's part of the national strategy is to one ride the wave of, you know, the president's party usually losing seats in a midterm election. Um, but in particular, in this case, just trying to say that Warnock is a rubber stamp uh, for um, Biden popular uh, uh, policies that may be perceived to be unpopular. But the thing about getting back to talking about the issues, it's not just that you see Herschel Walker talking to Glenn Beck about some insane sort of COVID cure in 2020 um, before it has a chance to be tested and that doesn't even make sense. It's also the way he's talking about it. I mean, he doesn't sound particularly smart or authoritative to some people. And so I think that there are a couple of issues. If he wants to talk about the economy, then what I suspect the Warnock uh, sort of negative attack mode is to then bring up all of those businesses that didn't do as well as Herschel Walker said. Um, but then there's also starting to talk about issues and inarticulateness. Now, I actually am one of those folks who thinks that uh, Walker is sometimes more articulate than some of us, like, you know, hoity-toity sort of, you know, ivory tower people think he is, right? And there's this kind of all shucks um, authenticity that I think is attractive to people. But if he's really going to start talking about the economy, is he going to be able to say it sort of in an articulate and authoritative way that actually makes you confident in putting him in charge of things? Because I have to admit, listening to that COVID cure that was just a whole bunch of hand-waving sounded completely insane to me, and it reminded me of relatives I know who thought that they had like reinvented the catalytic converter in the 80s. Um, and yeah, I was thinking about it. And then, and then there was his an, and and then there was his answer on gun control. Um, you know, he he was asked after all these these recent shootings, uh, what his opinion was on gun control, and, and and his answer to call it a word salad would be generous. I mean, think it it made absolutely no no sense. But I think what we're seeing here, going on in Georgia, is something that we're seeing in a number of these key races around the country, and and that is it's sort of like. On the one hand, the question is, Republicans would like this to be kind of a normal midterm election. What happens in a normal midterm election is, especially when you have a president who's pretty unpopular uh, and, and serious economic problems going on at the same time, people are generally unhappy about the way things are going in the country, is that voters you know, tend to uh, vote uh, you know, against the president's party. And the president's party takes a hit in the midterm elections. We saw that. We've seen that in, you know, the vast majority of midterm elections to varying degrees. Okay. On the other hand, particularly in some of these Senate races and some of the governor's races, we've seen in the past, and I, I wrote a piece about this for Sabato's Crystal Ball, that Republicans have blown opportunities to win seats. Uh, in, in, you know, in, in blown opportunities in races that were clearly winnable by nominating candidates who were either too extreme for the state they were running in, you know, or just, you know, loaded down with various personal baggage, controversy, scandals, and things of this sort. And so the question, you know, this year, I think, is are we going to see something like that happen in a number of these races? And I'm thinking especially of the Senate. I don't think this can swing enough House races to make a difference there. Um, the Republicans are almost certain to, to win back control of the House of Representatives. 
Um, the only question is, you know, how many seats are they going, uh, Democrats going to lose? Um, you know, will it be only 15 or 20 or could it be 30? Uh, but, you know, on the Senate side, it's touch and go because most of the seats are Republican seats that are up this year. And, and so uh, the, Demo- the Republicans don't have that many opportunities to pick up Democratic seats. Now you have a race like Georgia, Georgia, uh, along with like Arizona, Nevada, uh, possibly uh, N- New Hampshire. Uh, you know, these are the states where Republicans have an opportunity to pick up Democratic seats, and then they have to worry about you know, a couple of their own potentially vulnerable seats like Pennsylvania. But if they nominate candidates who are like, you know, like potentially Herschel Walker, you know, could cost them the seat in Georgia. Um, with all the baggage, you know, the, he, the, the Democrats, they just the attack ads just write themselves. Um, and, and I think that's what we're going to see. And the question is going to be, how much damage will some of these uh, candidates, uh, like Herschel Walker, like perhaps Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, um, you know, like Bud in North Carolina, could these, right. uh, in many cases, a Trump-endorsed candidates uh, cost the Republican seats that they could have won. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the amount of money that it's going to take to get Herschel Walker over that finish line is going to be incredible. And, Bill, I've made this point before. Here's the sad part for democracy. You know, right now we're looking at about $140 million that's going to be spent in the U.S. Senate race in Georgia, $140 million. That money's not going to be used to educate. That money's not going to be used to give us a real debate on the issues. It's not going to show us the, the differences on policy between these two candidates. It's not going to be used for any of that. It's going to be the crazy football player versus the bad Senator Biden lover socialist. That's all they're going to tell us. And that's the choice they're going to offer us for $130, $140 million. Um. Okay, so here's my question. To what extent, and I, I'm going to just, you know, we're looking at each other on WebEx, just raise your hand. To what extent, uh, except for the amount of money involved this te- in, 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 most, in the most recent election cycles, what's different about that kind of back and forth negative to negative? Is, is that new? It strikes me that we've been uh, caught in that a cycle for a very, very long time, haven't we? There's nothing new about this, is there? Who wants to jump in? Uh, Alan, jump in. It's not entirely new, but the uh, uh, the amount of money that's being spent is yeah. is certainly much sure. greater than in the past. Sure. Um, but the other thing that the kind of the context in which this is taking place, and what we have to always keep in mind is that all this money. And all this advertising, and we're, we're, the airwaves are going to be saturated, you know, uh, as, we, as we move ahead. I mean, it's already starting. And imagine what it's going to be like in September and October. Um, but all of it is aimed at influencing a tiny, tiny sliver of the electorate. Because, you know, right now we're in an era in which the, the uh, electorate is very polarized. And Georgia, we have a situation where we have, you know, rough, rough parity uh, between the, the size of, of the ba- East Party's base of support. So these ads are aimed at influencing a pretty small group of swing voters who, who might, you know, be persuadable. Um, and, and then a second, and the other thing they're trying to do, of course, is, is energize their base. 
uh, is, is trying to make their, their supporters uh, angry at the other side uh, over various things so they will get out and vote. Uh, and, and, but it's, it's a very you know, marginal effect. Um, you know, you can predict with a pretty high degree of confidence. We know which states are going to be in play uh, in, in November. We know which states are pretty safe for one party or the other. It's going to come down to about a half dozen uh, races for control of the Senate. There are about probably a half dozen you know, races for governor that are, that are up for grabs. And, and, and everything else is, pre- is pretty much locked in b- because uh, of the fact that, you know, voters' party loyalties uh, are, are, are largely set. They're, they're set. Uh, they're not going to change. Greg, final comment before we get to a break. Yeah, if there's a common complaint from Democrats and Republican activists is that this flood of money, you know, which they welcome on their side, um, doesn't lead to any lasting changes in infrastructure, right? If that is the TV stations, the broadcast outlets, the, the online websites, um, but it doesn't lead to, you know, very rarely does it actually build up the party infrastructure and lead to some sort of lasting um, change that, you know, that can carry on to 2024 or 2026. And we started to see a little bit of that in the last election cycle where you'd have out, uh, you know, outside groups also spending on uh, voter mobilization efforts, you know, hiring volunteers, um, hiring staffers. And I'd be really curious to see if we're starting to see that now, because we haven't seen that in, in at least a meaningful way yet. Um, and, you know, if you ask Nikema Williams or if you ask David Schaefer, if you ask the party, you know, the party leaders, that's what they want to see. <laughs> they want to see, you know, something that's not just here, here and there, gone in a flash, you know, the TV mm-hmm. ads that disappear. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, let's do this. Let's go to our final break. We'll be back with more in a moment. Today is Wednesday, which means all of you lucky subscribers to the Political Rewind newsletter will be getting the latest edition uh, in your inboxes. Uh, if you're not a subscriber, you can do it very easily. Just go to gpb.org newsletters, and uh, we'd love to start sending it out to you. Under Gillespie, let's go to the governor's race. Rick has given us some good information about what's happening with spending there. He points out the Kemp campaign itself, not a PAC, has a new negative ad on the air. They put $470,000 uh, behind it. Um, and, of course, it's the ad that everyone has been expecting for some time. It highlights Stacey Abrams saying Georgia is the worst state uh, to live in. She tried to explain what that meant. She cited data which shows the problems. All of that is correct, but it doesn't take away from that first statement. They're going to hammer her with that all the way through November, yes? Uh, yeah, I expect so. And this was um, an unforced error on on Abrams' part to frame it in that way. I mean, you know, I understand what she was trying to do. She was trying to say that there are problems that we need to solve. And so we, uh, Brian Kemp shouldn't take credit if there are all these issues that are left to fix. And she's trying to position herself as better able to address those issues to help improve the lives of all Georgians. But the way that it can be spliced into a soundbite makes her seem angry. And as an African-American woman, that is definitely something that can be deployed against you in a really stereotypical and pernicious way. So, um, yeah, I think that this is going to come up uh, multiple times. It, it seems very similar to the way, you know, in a different sense because she wasn't a candidate, but this is not dissimilar from, you know, when Michelle Obama was portrayed as the angry black woman when she said, for the first time in my life, I'm proud of my country. Um, and so the fact that we are now talking about a political candidate and not a spouse 
um, I think is something that we are going to have to be mindful of and, and, and watch and observe. Um, you know, I'm still trying to wrap my head around sort of the add in the bless your heart part. Like that doesn't sort of take the racial impact away. And I don't know if it's actually being deployed. I mean, it is being deployed in a typical Southern way, but I don't know if it's actually most effective in this particular context. Because I know when I say bless your heart in a this way, I probably say it a little bit differently. But <laughs> Rick, um, you also point out that there are two different Abrams ads on the air right now, one from a pack, which is uh, they're spending about 560000 uh, attacking Kemp on on his position on permitless carry, on his uh, uh, his uh, uh, law to essentially ban abortion in Georgia, on taxes, helping only the wealthiest Georgians. But, but I'm interested in the other one, and that's an Abrams campaign ad. They've spent $380,000, and we've all seen it, an ad talking about Stacey Abrams' business experience. She's a great businesswoman. And I, mm-hmm. I mention that because I've always wondered where that resonates. And I'm wondering what you, as a guy who's done a lot of campaigns, see as the impact of an ad like that. Who does it reach and how? Well, they're trying to show, number one, executive experience. And the governorship is an executive job. So you want to show that. Number two, some of it is defensive in that these days it's easier to make Democrats look like they're anti-business. And so what she is showing is I've got as much experience both as an executive leader and in the business community as any Republican there is. Uh, and so I can walk in on day one, and I know, number one, uh, how to run that office, but number two, I understand the importance of primarily small business in Georgia. And you elect me, I, I can build that. The other thing, what fascinates me the most about the tone, and it's the point that was just made, it is so unfair the way we judge African-American candidates, especially African-American women. And if you look at the way they present her in those ads, and then you compare it to the way she looked in the camp ad, that's really the fight that no one's going to really talk about in this election. And that is... The, the subtle racism that Republicans will use, this is the angry African-American woman, and you can't trust her. And she's going to show, I'm smart, intelligent, I have executive skills, uh, I love the business community, let me lead. That's going to be the real battle, and that's what all those ads are really about, I think. Wow, Greg, Greg, that's a really stark way of describing the different images that we're going to see of Stacey Abrams. And look, some of it might be from um, outside groups, you know, allied with Kemp, but not from the campaign itself. Um, uh, you know, I, I didn't even pick up on the bless her heart or bless your heart mm-hmm. part. I mean, I put it in my story, but I didn't pick up on that as, um, you know, I, I didn't think about it in that way. But, but Professor's right. Um, it could be viewed that way. Um, and look, I mean, this reminds me of, of what happened in the 2018 campaign when Stacey Abrams was down in Statesboro and she said something to the effect of uh, people shouldn't have to work in agriculture or hospitality mm-hmm. to make a good living. She was talking about climate change and new energy jobs, but the, and she, I, was, I was there. I mean, she corrected herself as soon as she said it. Um, it didn't matter because Republicans had that clip. And in this sense, in this case too, 
she knew it was a mistake the moment she uttered those words that Georgia isn't a great place, is, is the worst state to live in. She knew it. She said, let me try to contextualize it. It didn't matter because that frame mm-hmm. she, the Republicans had. And this is going to be something that, that continues to maybe be an issue for her campaign because I know this from covering Stacey Abrams for, I don't know, more than a decade now. She doesn't really answer the same question twice. I can predict what Governor Kemp will say when I ask him about Donald Trump. He says the same exact answer every single time. Stacey Abrams doesn't necessarily do that. And um, that's part of the, you know, the, the, the uniqueness of her campaign, the talent she has uh, towards policy, all that. But it also is a, a drawback because she will every so often make a, a gaffe like this that could be very damaging to her campaign. Um, and, it's, and, it's okay, unfair. Let... and it's totally unfair. It is totally unfair, and it's the way they ju- a lot of voters judge African-American candidates, and it's totally unfair. Alan? Uh, I, I think Rick was exactly right in the way he described you know, what they were trying to accomplish with that ad, which I have now seen many times. Um, on the other hand, I mean, I can't help but get the re- feeling as I'm watching that ad, which he talks about, I've started multiple businesses. I've been a CEO. I've been a CFO. I've been a tax attorney. I've been this. I've been that. That it kind of leaves you with the impression, well, why haven't you kind of done one thing well? It seems like, you know, I don't know. It just it's kind of a mixed message to me. It's like she's moved on from one thing to another to another to another without ever sticking with anything long enough to actually have a real record of accomplishment is one way, you know, one takeaway you could, you, you could, you could get from, from that ad. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure how effective that really, that really is. But I do understand what she's trying to accomplish with that and, and, what, what, and certainly the contrast between the image of Stacey Abrams that you see in her ad versus the angry black woman. And we're going to see this in the Senate race as well. Yeah. Um, and we saw it, in, you know, in the last time around, too, trying to portray Warnock as the angry black man um, and everything they did to try to counteract that. So the puppy ad, I thought, was the classic example there trying to counteract this sort of angry black man image. Look at me. Like, I love puppies, even though it actually well, wasn't well, wait a puppy. Minute. <laughs> well, well, wait a minute. Aren't we going to see Democrats try to portray Herschel Walker as the angry black man who uh, threatens women with a gun? And I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I Can you not oh, yeah, do no, that if you're go, a Democrat? It could definitely Andrew, can you not ways. do that? Mm-hmm. But but do you have to be mm-hmm. careful of that if you're a Democrat and how you might alienate African-American voters? I'm not sure what the strategy would be there. Well, I mean, uh, Herschel Walker's base is going to be white voters. So that mm-hmm. stereotypical framing, I mean, could be used to try to undermine moderate support for Walker. I think actually what the, the axis of this debate is going to be in the Senate race is actually going to be about religion. Um, and I think that this, it's going to come at it from a different angle than Kelly Leffler tried in 2020. But I, I think Walker is going to use abortion to try to undermine uh, 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 Warnock's uh, pastoral authority. To kind of get back to the question about that Allen race, I think that the sort of multiple jobs rings differently across generations. So I think older people who are used to people having steady long-term employment, but for younger people who are used to switching jobs all the time, she's showing like a variety of skill sets there. And I think that might be read differently by some younger voters. Yeah, tell me about it as a guy who has a young staff at uh, Political Rewind, and mm-hmm. they want to stay for a few years, and then they want to do something else. But <laughs> So I understand that. We're completely out of time. We did not get to the Wall Street Journal poll because today's 
All of you had such interesting things to say about the topics we did take on. I didn't want to interrupt you. I do want to talk about that poll on tomorrow's show because I think it has some really fascinating findings. We'll do that and more. In the meantime, Andrew Gillespie, Alan Abramowitz, Rick Dent, Greg Bluestein, thank you for a really excellent conversation on Political Rewind today. That's it for us. We are back with a new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye, everybody.